Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you all for joining us today. And most importantly, I want to thank a really incredible series of, of really distinguished speakers. Zack Snyder would be jealous to have a Justice League like this. Really, we are so honored and so happy to present such an incredibly knowledgeable uh, group to speak on this issue. We live in an age of great power competition, Republican president, Democratic president, tweeting, not tweeting, it doesn't matter. And in a competitive world, conventional and strategic deterrence are more important than ever. They are what prevents little problems from cycling into very, very big problems. The issue of strategic deterrence in an era of great power competition doesn't get near the attention it deserves. This may be the most informative, in-depth, and expansive discussion of what really could be one of the defining issues, strategic issues of our generation. So to start us off, I'm going to invite Roger Zackheim, who uh, heads the, uh, the Reagan Institute, a good partner of the Heritage Foundation, and Senator John Kyle, one of the world's leading figures on this issue, to, to join us on screen. Roger, you can introduce the senator and really start, which I think will be a very, very informative discussion. So Roger, over to you. Jim, thank you so much. And it's wonderful uh, to partner with the Heritage Foundation on this uh, nuclear series. Uh, it is my honor uh, to welcome our guest today, Senator John Kyle, who many of you know from his time serving the U.S. Senate from 1995 to 2013 when he retired. He served as the Senate Minority Whip from 2007 through 2013. And, and during that time, he really was a champion of nuclear modernization issues. It was true throughout his career, but it was proved pivotal during that period of time. And we'll get to some of that momentarily. Uh, Senator Kyle returned to the Senate in September 2018 after being appointed to succeed his good friend, the late John McCain. And I think the fact that he was asked to return to the Senate is really a testament to the real widespread respect and trust his colleagues and his constituents have for his long commitment uh, to public service. So Senator Kyle, uh, welcome and uh, excited to have this conversation with you today. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Jim, and thank you, Heritage and Reagan Foundations. Wonderful. Well, we're going to jump to it. We have about 25 minutes or so to really set the scene a bit on this important issue with Jim Carafano just outlined for all of us. Let me start with something Deputy Secretary of Defense Kath Hicks said during her confirmation hearing. She said, quote, I agree that nuclear deterrence is the department's highest priority mission and that updating and overhauling our nation's nuclear forces is a critical national security priority, end quote. Now, you've heard this a lot from past senior officials, Kath Hicks, Dr. Hicks, the deputy secretary, someone who certainly will be a pivotal player on this issue set. With the kind of bipartisan commitment that she articulated there, um, tell me, kind of, how have we gotten to where we are today regarding nuclear modernization? And in your judgment, Senator Kyle, how bad is the situation? 
Well, back in about uh, 2008, 2009, there were a lot of questions being asked about how we were going to uh, conduct the modernization program, both for the nuclear weapons themselves and also uh, we understood that the platforms all needed uh, modernization as well. And Congress commissioned a report, the so-called uh, 1231 report, which uh, outlined uh, ultimately the needs that uh, both the Department of Energy and the Department of Defense uh, had in, in moving forward with the modernization program and uh, concluded that there would be a pretty significant budget shortfall if we didn't uh, up our commitment. As a result uh, of that report, when the administration, the Obama administration began to discuss the possibility of a new START treaty, um, I engaged them and others did as well on the question of whether or not they would be supportive of the modernization effort that was called for in that report, because without it, clearly we couldn't in, uh, join a new start or uh, uh, in any other way restrict our, our capabilities. Through a process of negotiation, we eventually agreed with the Obama administration and uh, the uh, president sent a letter to the Senate outlining his support for the modernization program. Um, presumably based upon that, that report. And for the first couple of years uh, after the New START Treaty was adopted, the administration did request in its budget submittals the funding for uh, all aspects of the modernization program. Over time, that eventually waned, and it wasn't just the fault of the administration. Uh, there were some appropriators over in the House of Representatives who were not particularly helpful, and as a result, we began to fall behind. And by the time the Trump administration came in, uh, we were in fact behind both in the weapon modernization itself and for the, the three aspects of our triad, the delivery systems. And I'll just say, Roger, uh, just to conclude uh, at, at this point, we brought the problem on ourselves by allowing these two needs to arise at the same time, both of which cost money. If we had moved forward with the weapon modernization first and gotten that out of the way, then we wouldn't have to worry so much about the expense uh, of doing the platform modernization at the same time. But now we have both of them coming due. Both bills are due at the same time. Yeah. And as a result, we're going to have to devote more uh, funding for that. And the Trump administration did increase the spending to some extent. Congress was somewhat helpful. so. We've caught up to some extent, but there is literally no margin for error in finishing out the program, which will require about a 10 to 15 year commitment. Uh, Senator Khan, I want to jump in on that in a little more detail, but on an administrative technical note, uh, so our viewers can see you, uh, who they want to see, and not just me, who they probably don't care to see, if you could accept the webcam share button, now click on that. Uh, folks can see you, and there I see you've done it now. So we are good to go. Uh, Senator, you know, the New York Times, you were referencing this period back in 2010, uh, where they wrote that the Obama White House might as well install a red telephone hotline in Senator Kyle's uh, office or house uh, because you were so pivotal on these issues. And, you know, they knew that if you were not satisfied with the administration's commitment to funding the nuclear enterprise that you would likely not only just vote against New Star, which you ultimately did, but actually 
encourage others to do the same. Based on your answer, it seems to me that you're not satisfied with how it all played out, reflecting on this 10 years later. Uh, is that an accurate assessment? Obviously, there's some detail in there, but we haven't modernized in the way that you felt we needed to a decade ago. That's true, uh, although I do want to make it clear that I agreed not to oppose the treaty on the basis of the commitment that the president did make. And as I said, for the first couple of years, their budget submittals did reflect the commitment made for modernization. The problem is that uh, as the, uh, the I'll, I'll brag a little bit about the report that Dr. Hicks was involved in, Dr. Payne, uh, others, myself, um, providing for the common defense. This was an analysis of our, of our uh, defense strategy uh, after uh, General and then Secretary Mattis uh, developed the defense strategy for the Trump administration. We called in there for a five to seven percent increase annually, and uh, the implied period of time was about 15 years for this program to be completed. And the problem is that we haven't had that kind of funding. But both the unanimous recommendation of the strategic uh, or of the Defense Commission report and the uh, Defense Department and the Trump administration agreed that without this um, five to seven percent growth, it was characterized in at one point of three to five percent plus inflation. So if you add in at least two percent inflation, uh, you've got a five to seven percent. And that had to occur over about a 15 year period for the program to be completed. Unfortunately, we've fallen behind. And so we're going to have to maintain that commitment. And right now, we do not have the consensus that ostensibly existed back in 2010. Yeah, in, indeed, you and I worked on that National Defense Strategy Commission. Uh, I remember you being the leading voice on that commission. You mentioned Dr. Hicks. It was co-chaired by Ambassador Eric Edelman and Admiral Gary Ruffhead in terms of what we needed to do with respect to our nuclear enterprise. And uh, I recall you know, the National Defense Strategy and that National Defense Strategy Commission focused so heavily on nuclear modernization because the strategy itself and the challenges and the competition, as Jim Carafano referenced at the outset here, with China and Russia made the United States more reliant on nuclear weapons than perhaps we were prior to this era of great power competition, prior you know, to more reliant than perhaps we were a decade ago uh, during the Obama administration. I want to read to you uh, a couple of, of, of quotes and policies which suggest somehow uh, that the new administration, the Biden administration, may be departing from that bipartisan consensus uh, that was captured in that commission report. Uh, Senator Warren, for example, uh, during her campaign, called for a, quote, no first use policy. And candidate Biden promised, quote, uh, to reduce excessive expenditure on nuclear arms. And then recently, you may have seen the interim national security guidance. That is a document that came from the National uh, Security Council as almost a foreshadowing of their national security strategy and their national defense strategy said, quote, we will take steps to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in our national security strategy. That would be a departure from the previous administration. Um, are you concerned? Do you think this is a, uh, a sentiment that will find its way into administration policy which uh, and budgets? Or is this kind of uh, signaling to outside groups that want to see some language on this, but uh, perhaps may not 
really uh, make a, a significant impact on policy. What, what's your take after hearing uh, those quotes? I don't know what's in the president's mind, and I don't know the extent to which he's going to drive this within the administration. There are some people like Dr. Hicks that you mentioned and uh, people who are uh, on the Joint Chiefs and uh, Secretary of Defense and others who put this as a top priority, who say the funding must be there and that the program must continue. There are others uh, who are more ideologically uh, oriented to the left who would like to somehow see the problem go away and therefore we don't have to spend so much money on it. Well, it'd be nice if the Russians and the Chinese, the Iranians and the North Koreans uh, would be cooperative, but unfortunately they haven't. We have two problems here. Number one, we dug ourselves a hole and we've got to get out of it. And number two, our two most difficult potential adversaries, China and Russia, have been working very hard in the meantime to modernize their forces. According to one estimate, the Russians are about 86% complete in their modernization program. And the Chinese might, by the end of this decade, have doubled or tripled the number of their warheads. So they're both proceeding apace. You have a challenge from them, and you have a problem here in the United States because we don't apparently have a consensus on what needs to be done and a commitment to expend the funds necessary to reach our, our goals. Both I wanna, of them addressed by the Biden administration. I wanna get to the funding and uh, a kind of domestic view in a moment, but you did mention China and Russia and what they're doing. Let me share with you what Chairman Adam Smith has said. Of course, he is the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee and oversees the 050 budget. And with that, all aspects of funding for the nuclear enterprise, he said, quote, I just wish we take a serious look at whether or not we can achieve the necessary level of deterrence for less money like China has, end quote. China currently, as you uh, know, has less than 200 uh, around 200 nuclear warheads, while the U.S. has just under 4,000. Uh, how do you respond to Adam Smith's point? Uh, you seem to look at China as an example which really dr should drive our prioritizing nuclear weapons funding. He seems to be drawing a different conclusion. Well, a couple of things. First of all, the United States has to worry about several potential challenges. China has to worry about one. We have to deal with both China and Russia, and we have to be concerned about challenges from countries like uh, North Korea and Iran and potentially others. So um, we've got a bigger problem on our hands than China. Secondly, you kind of realize that you can't uh, compare our funding levels with China. And uh, Chairman Smith is a smart guy who chairs the House Armed Services Committee. I'm sure he appreciates this. Uh, over half of our military budget is, is personnel costs. Well, guess how much the personnel costs are for the Chinese military? It's a very small percentage. Um, and so you, you just it's comparing apples and oranges to try to suggest that our level should be no more than the Chinese. Um, we have to deal with a combination of threats. The Chinese and the Russians brag about how they practice their military operations together in wargaming. And uh, if, so what if they combine their effort? Uh, we, uh, under New START, supposedly have an adequate force to deter Russia, but it does not equate to a threat that would be simultaneously um, from both uh, Russia and China. This is one of the problems with the new start, and we should have been able to 
somehow include China in the New START uh, treaty when it was automatically um, uh, agreed to reauthorization by, by uh, President Biden. Uh, the other thing we should have done is to gotten a better consensus of our own on how we're going to conclude our own modernization uh, in the timeframes that are required. Well we're, we'll get to the extension of, of New Star in just a minute. Uh, and you did put your finger on the, the simultaneity challenge. We wrestled with that on the Defense Strategy Commission, which is the increased reliance on nuclear weapons with the previous administration's strategy was precisely because we were only going to have a conventional force kind of adequate to deal with the China uh, and to adequately deter a spoiler, another actor, or Russia, or someone else. That really brought nuclear weapons into high relief. Um, let me shift to the domestic view. The 2021 Reagan National Defense Survey found that 53% think the U.S. would win a war with a nuclear power. I mean, my own view on that, that's a pretty low number uh, that uh, Americans aren't overwhelmingly confident that we could defeat a nuclear power. Um, you know, you were a champion of nuclear issues throughout your time in office, outside office as well, uh, the various commissions you've been on. Uh, what do you think the political support is for nuclear modernization? And is it something you ever really encountered in discussing with your constituents? No, I didn't, because it's not on people's mind. And one reason is because the leaders don't talk about it. We haven't had a president since Ronald Reagan who was willing to sit down and explain things to the American people winning a nuclear war nobody wins a nuclear war the object is not to have to ever fight one and you do that by being strong enough and clear enough in your intentions that no potential opponent ever takes the risk of starting a war with the united states that's what deterrence is all about the object is not to win the war the object is to deter the war now in order to do that with credibility the opposition, potential opposition, has to know that you're willing to use your weapons and that they will uh, suffer a defeat uh, at the hands of the United States if we ever do decide to use our weapons. That's why this, this deterrence must be credible. And it is quite clear, uh, I'm sure, that both the Chinese military leaders as well as the Russians appreciate the dilemma that the United States now faces with uh, a divided Congress and a divided uh, policy elite uh, discussing this issue. When you have people honestly discussing the possibility of eliminating the uh, the uh, leg of the of the triad that uh, is our land leg with with missiles, and actually eliminating that leg of the triad, so for a few dollars, that's not serious thinking. I, I, I'm glad you raised that because that's the next place I wanted to go. Uh, you mentioned that uh, there is an increasingly loud voice. I don't know if it's a winning voice in the Congress uh, that wants to go from a triad to a dyad. Despite the trillions of dollars that our government uh, is spending on other priorities, that seems to be one that is the GBSD, the ground-based strategic deterrent, seems one that continues to be targeted. Uh, you have uh, appropriations committees and authorizations committees will be looking at this issue. Uh, we're told from uh, ranking member Mike Rogers in the House and the Armed Services Committee that there aren't the votes there to defeat uh, 
the GBVSD program to move from a triad to a dyad. But Senator Kyle, what is the best argument as to why we need all three legs of the triad? What do we, why is it, uh, what is it that the critics don't understand that makes the ground-based deterrent so relevant and important even today? Well, in view of the time we have, I, I would hope that the next panel, uh, which includes uh, Dr. Keith Payne, who's the expert on this, um, in authoring the NPR and so on, uh, can go into a little bit more detail. But the bottom line, I'll just make two points. One, uh, China and Russia are both relying on a triad. They understand the importance of it. And up to now, every serious defense thinker has appreciated the fact that we need all three legs of the triad in order to provide the maximum deterrence. You wanna prevent an opponent from ever believing that there's potentially something be, to be gained by testing the United States. If we've got all three legs, they can't win because you've got the missile leg, which is the which contains the most weapons that can do the most offensive destruction against an enemy, and which if enough of them are launched uh, in time can do dramatic damage to the enemy. Uh, and it is also a leg which requires a lot of assets by the opposition uh, to take out. So if uh, Russia, for example, were trying to plan an attack on the United States, they would have to devote a considerable amount of their arsenal to take out that uh, missile component of the United States, which would leave us with a better opportunity for our bombers to reach their targets with their uh, with the missiles that they have to uh, launch the weapons, and also our submarines uh, for the missiles that they have on board. It is currently uh, pretty hard for an enemy to know where our submarines are, and therefore it's a relatively safe part of our deterrent. But uh, in the future, we can't guarantee that uh, our submarines won't be detectable, and it would be folly in the nth degree to think that the Russians and the Chinese aren't working very hard on ways uh, to defeat all three legs of our triad, uh, in which case, obviously, you need the, you need the three. So, um, with without all three complicating the enemy's uh, offensive planning, uh, we significantly diminish the potential effectiveness of our deterrent. That's a great set of points. We only have time for one more question, Senator Kyle. It's it's always a pleasure to chat with you and and, and get your real clear thinking on this issue set. We'll end with the INF Treaty. You mentioned Ronald Reagan. That was the arms reduction agreement that was agreed to during his administration. The Trump administration pulled out of the INF Treaty in, in 2019. Um, and the view was that any renegotiation of the deal would have to incorporate Beijing, that is China. Uh, the Chinese, of course, have thus far refused. And uh, they point to the disparities between U.S. and Chinese arsenals. Do you agree with that approach? Should we look to bring China in to future arms uh, reduction treaties? Um, and um, do you think that could actually happen where the US and China might come together on arms, arms control, arms reduction agreement? Well, I got about three quick thoughts on that. First of all, it's imperative, given the uh, commitment that the Chinese have now made to become a nuclear power if not on parity with Russia and the United States, certainly at a level which we have to account for. They've done that. We can't ignore it. So yes, China should be involved in these discussions. Secondly, even though China doesn't like to talk to people about what they have, and they're not transparent at all, and therefore it makes it dangerous because we're not quite uh, as sure as we are with Russia, 
exactly what deterrent requirements there are. Um, I think it is important to continue the negotiations, if at all possible, which to some extent do give you a window into their thinking and give them a window into our thinking so that they will never miscalculate and, and think that just possibly they might be able to get away with either a threat against us or actually using weapons. And the third point I'd make is this. Arms control itself never is the complete answer. It can be a component to deterrence. But the bottom line is that sovereign nations will do what they think is in their interest at the time that they have to make these decisions, and no treaty is going to stand in their way. Russian violations of the INF Treaty is a good illustration of that. Um, there is no way, even verification, you can verify the enemy is cheated, doesn't solve the problem because then the question is, well, what do you do about it? Right. And at the end of the day, the only thing you can do is use force. Well, that's not a good option either. So you cannot rely on treaties in trying to, defer, to deter an opponent from aggression, and especially with regard to nuclear weapons, since once you start it, it's very hard to stop it, and it can result in the destruction of literally mankind if, if, uh, if it were done to completion. So you, you have to appreciate that sovereign nations will, if they think it's in their interest, violate treaties. Right. You can't stop them from that. And you have to have a backup which convinces them that they don't dare ever try to test the United States because the consequences for them would be too too significant. Senator Kyle, we'll have to leave it there with that endorsement of peace through strength. Um, it is wonderful to have this chance to chat with you today. We uh, greatly appreciate your voice. And it's a voice that uh, we continue to need here. Uh, in Washington, D.C., and around the country, around the world. Uh, it, it is great to see you. Thank you so much. Now we'll go to the Heritage Foundation Nuclear Deterrence and Missile Defense Policy Analyst, analyst Patty Jane Geller, to lead the second portion of our event today. Awesome. Thanks so much, Roger. Um, and also, big thanks to Senator Kyle for providing us his insights and setting the stage for the rest of the, this panel discussion. Um, I thought he had some, some great things to say. I thought the audience got a lot out of that. Um, so I'm Patty Jane Geller, the policy analyst for nuclear deterrence and missile defense here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, and we're shifting now into a panel of esteemed experts who will help us dive deeper into the Russian and Chinese nuclear threats and what the US can do to counter them. So I'd like to invite our panelists to join us on screen now uh, so that I can introduce them. So first we have Rebecca Heinrichs, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute who specializes in nuclear deterrence and missile defense. Rebecca and I recently worked together on a report actually that details the growing nuclear threat uh, despite the recent New START extension. So we'll get to hear more about that issue from her. Next we have Dr. Matt Kranig. Dr. Kranig is the deputy director of the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and director of the Global Strategy Initiative at the Atlantic Council. He has served in multiple DoD and intelligence community positions and is also a professor at Georgetown. And finally, we have Dr. Keith Payne. Dr. Payne is president and co-founder of the National Institute for Public Policy. He has served in a number of key government positions and we are grateful to benefit from his years of experience this afternoon. 
Um, now we're going to start with opening remarks from each of our panelists. I have asked Rebecca to outline the growing challenges posed by Russia, uh, followed by Dr. Kranig to discuss the rising Chinese nuclear threat, and Dr. Payne to discuss U.S. nuclear capabilities in deterring these threats. Then we will move to a moderated discussion where I will field questions from the audience uh, that you, you can submit with the tool on the right-hand side uh, throughout the event. Um, so with that, Rebecca, whenever you're ready, please start us off. Thank you so much, Patty Jane. It is a privilege and a pleasure to be here today with this esteemed panel. And if I could just um, say one more thing about Senator Kyle, you know, it's I think it, it is really rare to have uh, somebody like him who understands these issues so well, is completely committed to them, and has the political skill to actually do the work necessary to hold off bad agreements, to make bad agreements, better agreements, treaties. Um, and, to and to really rally uh, the troops, so to speak, to, to be able to make sure that that happens. He did it for the New START Treaty. He has um, been incredibly helpful when the Russians were cheating on the INF Treaty, at bringing light to that, on stopping the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, on that being uh, ratified. So we just, I just, um, you know, for myself and, and for our posterity, we just owe great thanks to Senator Kyle. And so it's a, it's a privilege to be a part of this event. Um, of which he just uh, gave the first opening remarks for. Um, and then I, I would just make a, just a couple of brief points before we dig in. Uh, one is that, uh, broadly speaking, we, we will often hear people say that our nuclear deterrent is the most important and is our is, it is a priority. Dr. Kathleen Hicks said that during her confirmation hearing, and she also made the point that not only is nuclear modernization important, but that, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it has to it has to be credible. It has. She doesn't want to assume greater risk if we don't provide the modern modernization necessary. So she has a, a a good understanding of that. And so um, it is my hope that with enough bipartisan efforts to carry the um, carry through the commitment to nuclear modernization, full nuclear modernization, that 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 will win the day at the end. But it's going to be tough because the political climate is really tough. But what we mean by that, but what, what we mean by nuclear deterrence being the most important, I think, um, could deserve some, it deserves some fleshing out a bit. Um, and and it's, I think it's important to know that all of our conventional military operation planning has baked into the assumption that nuclear deterrence will hold, that strategic deterrence will hold, and, um, and that our nuclear deterrent will provide a credible deterrent for the worst kinds of acts of aggression against American vital interests. And so everything else our military does, everything else our military does, again, baked into that assumption, there is an assumption that nuclear deterrence will hold. And we need to be constantly looking at the real world threats as they change over time um, and making sure that our nuclear deterrent, therefore, is credible in the minds of our adversaries. And Senator Kyle laid out some, some new threats that are coming that are different even today than there was even four years ago, five years ago. And certainly from the time that the Obama administration wrote their nuclear posture review, and then some things have changed even since the, since the Trump nuclear posture review. And so we need to make sure that our forces are adapting to those real changes. Um, I don't want to steal the thunder of Dr. Payne, but I, I did want to just, I wanted to just pull out a little piece. He, he recently has a new manuscript uh, that, that lays out modern strategic uh, deterrence and how we should think about it. And this is the model that he lays, if I may, sir, just quote, quote this right now, because I think it's helpful then as I talk about Russia for the last minute. He says a more apt stability metaphor rather than this sort of mechanistic 
um, stability metaphor where you can kind of swap out any country. And if you just have these certain kinds of capabilities that can hold their capabilities at risk, that you have stability. Rather than that, in contrast to that, he says a more apt stability metaphor is the blocking and channeling of rising torrents of water in diverse rivers and streams that will expand beyond their established banks where and when there is an opportunity and nothing to prevent flooding. The necessary system of resilient levees and dams must prevent flooding in the context of good weather and hurricanes. I think that is an incredibly helpful picture for me. And so I wanted to pass that along to you all. And then that gets me to Russia in particular. And then we'll let Matt kind of talk about, I think, China. And that's that the Russians are investing heavily in their nuclear uh, program. And Senator Kyle said they're about 80% done with their nuclear modernization program. And it's not just the kinds of weapon systems they are developing novel weapon systems, delivery systems. Um, it's also, uh, there's certain categories of weapons that are not included in the New START Treaty. And so while you might have some policymakers kind of taking a sigh of relief that the Biden administration extended the New START Treaty for another five years without precondition, that it doesn't include a number of kinds of nuclear weapons in their delivery systems um, that the Russians are heavily invested in and outnumber the United States. Tactical nuclear weapons obviously is the one that comes to mind. They outnumber the United States 10 to one. And uh, kind of Jane and I include that in a report, which I commend to you that lays out in a nice graph, the difference so you can see what the Russians are doing versus the United States and also the Chinese in particular. And so the United States has to have an answer to that again, to deter the worst kinds of conflict. Um, and, and so these are for the United States, um, obviously the goal is stability and peace. And, and that's in, that is increasingly tenuous. Admiral Richard, the, the commander of strategic command has, has now been kind of sounding an alarm bell as, as um, calmly as he can without being alarmist um, too much that, that, that we, are, we are at a time now where the nuclear employment um, is increasingly plausible because the Russians in particular have lowered the threshold of which they might decide to employ nuclear weapons in what could be could start out as a purely conventional non-nuclear conflict because they believe that they could employ perhaps a low-yield nuclear weapon against a NATO ally and that the United States and our NATO allies would essentially not deem it worth it to, to risk further escalation by employing a nuclear weapon and therefore sue for peace. And that's called, you know, this idea of, of escalate to de-escalate. And so the, the Trump NPR sought to adapt to that challenge by adding um, low-yield nuclear weapons into the battlefield so that we have a credible option there. Um, but, but we need to constantly be looking to make sure that that um, provides the credible uh, deterrence to, to, to the Russians in particular. And I'll, I'll just leave my remarks there to turn it over to Dr. Kranick. Awesome. Thanks, Rebecca. That was excellent. Um, and I'll just mention to the, the audience that there is a document attached in the handouts tab of the uh, control panel that includes some of the reports that uh, Rebecca mentioned among some um, a piece by Dr. Kranig as well that I would recommend the audience check out. Um, so with that, um, I'll hand it over to you, uh, Dr. Kranig. Great, well, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for the invitation and uh, it's great to be speaking with my esteemed uh, colleagues on, on this subject. Um, I'm going to talk about the growing Chinese nuclear threat. And uh, just a few years ago, when I uh, would talk about um, the, the nuclear threats facing the United States and its allies, uh, I would say that of the three major nuclear armed rivals, Russia, China, and North Korea, I, I was least worried about China um, uh, a few years ago. I, I think that's changed. I I'm probably uh, most worried about uh, China now. Uh, and so what I want to talk about today is uh, kind of 
briefly the history of China's nuclear program, how that's really changing under President Xi and, and uh, the, both the threat in terms of capabilities and possible nuclear use scenarios that China poses uh, to the United States. Uh, so historically, going back to Mao Zedong, uh, Mao Zedong um, uh, famously um, uh, wanted China to have a, a no first use uh, policy, uh, basically promising that China wouldn't use nuclear weapons first uh, in a conflict, would only use nuclear weapons in retaliation uh, to another attack. Um, Mao Zedong also uh, said he didn't want to get into an arms race with the superpowers. Uh, he thought that having a, a lean and effective deterrent was enough. It's often incorrectly translated into uh, English as a minimum deterrent, but the, the better translation is lean and effective. Um, and um, so for many years, uh, Mao's successors basically followed that. And China still has a no first use policy. They still say they want a lean and effective arsenal. And so many Western analysts just uh, parrot uh, those kind of Chinese talking points. But, but I think it's really changed. You know, President Xi has thrown out a lot of the grand strategy of uh, Deng Xiaoping and, and others who came before him becoming more aggressive in international politics. And I think that's happening in the nuclear era as well. Uh, so in terms of capabilities, uh, we're seeing a, a rapid um, modernization and increase of China's uh, nuclear capabilities. Uh, and I think a change in, uh, possibly change in policy and uh, doctrine as I'll talk about in a moment. Um, so the United States has said that China's um, strategic nuclear arsenal will double uh, within the decade. Um, Admiral Richards of Stratcom uh, in questioning from Senator Tom Cotton said, well, maybe even triple or quadruple um, over time. And so for a, a long time, you know, we feared that if, as China tried to become a superpower, it would also want to build a superpower nuclear arsenal. It would want to sprint to parity. And um, so uh, not yet on, on uh, uh, you know, where it will reach parity with the United States, but it does seem like it's moving in that direction, and, and that's concerning. Um, moreover, China has a uh, arguably a theater nuclear advantage over the United States uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, it has um, uh, uh, hundreds or thousands of short and intermediate range missiles that could reach U.S. bases, uh, U.S. allies, U.S. forces uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, the United States currently doesn't have any uh, theater nuclear weapons uh, in Asia. Uh, we did during the Cold War, but we've uh, taken them home. Now we have forward deployable nuclear weapons. We could potentially bring forward um, uh, B-61 bombers, uh, dual capable aircraft, uh, but currently no, no nuclear weapons uh, in Asia. Uh, and so China, in, in a sense, has a, a local nuclear advantage uh, over the United States. If there were to be a conflict over Taiwan uh, tomorrow, uh, China would have nuclear weapons that it could use uh, um, uh, whereas the United States would have to bring those from, from long uh, distances or, or rely on strategic capabilities, which wouldn't be ideal in a, in a local conflict. Um, so um, worried about the growth in, in China's nuclear uh, capabilities. This may be the beginning of a sprint to parity. And then just talk a little bit about the scenarios because some American analysts say, well, well China has a no first use policy. There's nothing to worry about as long as we don't use nuclear weapons, they won't use nuclear weapons. Uh, but I think there are a few things to worry about. So one, um, I have been in dialogues with Chinese experts who say, well, you have a no first use policy, but what if there's a major conflict uh, in the region? What if the United States is conducting conventional strikes on Chinese command and control uh, on, on conventional missiles, maybe where you're uh, co-locating nuclear missiles? And they've said, well, in that kind of scenario, um, maybe we would use nuclear weapons first. 
so no first use is kind of a glass half full, glass half empty. You know, the United States says we do not have a no first use policy because there's a narrow range of contingencies where we would use nuclear weapons first. China essentially says we do have a no first use policy, but there are a narrow range of contingencies where we would use nuclear weapons first. Uh, so in short, I don't put a lot of stock in their no first use policy. I, I think they might use nuclear weapons first. And especially if you imagine a, a Taiwan scenario where they try to invade Taiwan, it's going poorly for them. Uh, if, if China thinks that using nuclear weapons could help to uh, help them to win the war, to, to blunt U.S. military power, uh, to maybe shock uh, U.S. leaders into backing down, I think they would find that attractive. You know, Russia has basically developed this escalate to de-escalate strategy. Uh, China could do something similar. In fact, the last nuclear posture review um, did did talk about how China might um, uh, 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 use nuclear weapons in, in a kind of limited way, uh, and that the United States needed flexi flexible capabilities to stop it. Um, the other thing I, I would say is that the United States, of course, uh, doesn't have a no first use policy. We say nuclear threats, nuclear use are on the table uh, to deal with our uh, rivals. And, and so if there's a major war with uh, China over, say, Taiwan, the United States might want to use um, uh, nuclear weapons, uh, potentially use nuclear weapons against Chinese invading forces. And then the challenge would be one of intra-war deterrence. How do we deter China from attacking uh, the U.S. homeland? Can we keep the conflict uh, limited? So um, I, th I think I'm nearing the end of my time, but um, the last point I'd leave you with is the last national defense strategy said that the United States wanted to maintain a favorable balance of power over China in, in the Indo-Pacific. And I think that's the right goal. But I think many people thinking about the China challenge are thinking only about the conventional. Uh, but if China arguably has a theater nuclear advantage uh, and uh, we're increasingly vulnerable at the strategic level, China's ability to nuke uh, the U.S. homeland is, is growing, uh, then it's hard for me to see how we maintain that favorable balance of power. I think a favorable balance of power also means maintaining favorable balances at the highest end. Um, of the escalation rungs, including at uh, the strategic and, and theater nuclear levels. Uh, so I'll end my remarks there and very much look forward to uh, remarks from Dr. Payne. That was great. Thank you, Dr. Koenig. Um, and then finally over to Dr. Payne. Uh, thank you, Patty Jane. It's a pleasure to uh, be on a panel with such excellent speakers and particularly to share virtually the, the stage with Senator, the great Senator Kyle. Let me start with a caveat, um, and that is everything I say, are these are all my personal opinions and not necessarily reflect the views of any institution that I am associated with or have been associated with. And with that caveat out of the way, let me start with my conclusion. And that is uh, that the West now faces an unprecedented nuclear threat context and deterrence challenge. It's unlike anything we faced during the Cold War. How is that? Uh, let me explain. Opponents' nuclear weapons can be more or less threatening, depending on how those opponents think about nuclear use. Uh, that's at least as important for deterrence considerations as the weapon's technical characteristics, which is what we usually focus on. And unfortunately, opponents now appear to think of nuclear weapons in a new and more dangerous way. The old familiar Cold War balance of terror notion of deterrence provides very little useful guidance for how to proceed in this new threat context. What is that? Well, contemporary great powers and rogue states seem not to acknowledge the deterrence restraints that we in the West assume 
a balance of terror will place on all rational leaderships. Uh, Russia, for example, has been explicit in using nuclear threats to push its goal of changing the existing international order. Russia's coercive use of nuclear threats goes well beyond the Cold War's assumed stable deterrence exchange that if you strike me, I will retaliate massively. That was the assumed and largely defensive use of deterrence in Western policy. However, the, the coercive nuclear threat Russia now brandishes is, if you resist my expansionist encroachment, I will strike you. This is an offensive, coercive nuclear threat unlike anything we faced during the Cold War, and it presents an unprecedented challenge for U.S. deterrence strategies and capabilities. Russia appears to see nuclear first-use threats as the way to paralyze prospective NATO military opposition in the event conflict erupts from Russia's expansionist drives. Uh, this is euphemistically referred to, as was noted earlier, as de-escalating a conflict. But it's important to understand that the conflict is de-escalated because the West stands down. This is not a defensive deterrent strategy. It is a strategy to defeat Western will and to enforce a relatively unchallenged route to changing the international system. Uh, this type of thinking is a direct contradiction of our familiar Cold War notion of a stable balance of terror, uh, which provides no guidance here because its fundamental presumption is that no rational leadership could think about nuclear weapons in this way. It, it must be asked uh, now, how do Moscow leaders, how do Moscow's leaders perceive the risks associated with provoking the West with limited nuclear threats or employment? And uh, what nuclear risks are they willing to accept in pursuit of their goal of reestablishing the Russian hegemony in much of Eurasia that they believe the West stole from them? And more to the point, how credible against Russian limited nuclear first use threats that may avoid US territory entirely is the old US balance of terror oriented deterrent strategy when the consequence of executing such a threat for the United States would likely be our own destruction. The same questions must be asked of China's thinking about nuclear weapons and risk. This situation suggests a significant hole in any US deterrent strategy that's based on confidence in the old stable balance of terror thinking. Now I acknowledge this may sound uh, nebulous, uh, but it is a stark real world problem. Much of our defense planning, as Rebecca rightly noted, is predicated on the assumption that strategic nuclear deterrence will prevent opponents' nuclear use. If that expectation is mistaken, we have a breathtaking deterrence problem. I fully agree with the point Senator Kyle made and that President Reagan made earlier, a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. So what? So Western strategies and capabilities, nuclear and, nu and non-nuclear, must now be structured to credibly deter this so-called red theory of victory. This is a new deterrence requirement for Western policies and capabilities. And our understanding of deterrence must catch up to this geopolitical reality. What's the implication of this, situ this situation for the calculation of how much is enough for credible deterrence? The US requirement now is to deter a range of plausible nuclear threats, particularly including unprecedented 
regional nuclear first use threats. Uh, correspondingly, U.S. policies and capabilities now must be resilient, flexible, and tailored to support credible deterrence. That requirement puts a premium on the deterrence value of the nuclear triad and on NATO nuclear forces for the resilience and flexibility they can provide. That's the goal underlying the Obama and Trump administration's programs to rebuild the aged U.S. nuclear force. Uh, until fairly recently, the United States has been on what some describe as a 30-year holiday away from strategic thought and movement. Uh, opponents have not reciprocated the clearly expressed U.S. desire for further nuclear reductions and disarmament. In fact, they've gone in the opposite direction for well over a decade. Are the current Obama and Trump programs adequate to sustain deterrence now? That's the bottom line question. Are they adequate to sustain deterrence now? Uh, my answer is that I believe them to be necessary and I hope they are adequate. I wish I could be more definite, but there is no methodology. There's no group of people, there's no methodology that can eliminate the uncertainties regarding how much is enough for deterrence, eliminate them entirely. And that's why hedging against uncertainty as best we can is so critical and why rebuilding the triad is so important. Yet predictably, many commentators now criticize the Obama and Trump nuclear rebuilding programs as being destabilizing and the cause of a new arms race. As if the United States is now starting an arms race rather than responding after a solo three decade holiday. We also hear repeatedly that rebuilding the triad now is unnecessary for deterrence, uh, that we can deter with much smaller forces and without the ICBM or bomber legs of the triad. I ask folks to please realize that such confident claims are entirely speculative. They're entirely speculative. Uh, these critics of the bipartisan US nuclear program and policy do not and cannot know whether they are correct or entirely mistaken. Uh, their claims, in fact, are derived from archaic notions of deterrence from the 1960s, which ignore contemporary realities and should not be the basis for our considerations. My conclusion is that they are dangerously mistaken, given contemporary realities. And if we do not recognize that now, we are likely to learn it the hard way at some future point. There's a lot more to say about this, but in the interest of time, I'll stop there and thank you. Excellent, thank you, Dr. Payne. Um, that was really insightful. And my my first question actually it kind of follows on to uh, one of the last points you were making there. Um, you discussed how the U.S. has a new requirement to deter a range of nuclear threats, including uh, regional first use threats. Um, and you also questioned whether the Obama-Trump modernization plan is is enough to do that. Um, something that concerns me that I've been thinking about is that our current modernization plans are uh, to simply replace the capabilities that were agreed upon under the 2010 New START force structure. Um, however, those capabilities were a product of the security environment at the time, which assumed a, a more benign environment than the multipolar challenges we face today. Uh, Dr. Koenig mentioned that a few years ago, he wouldn't have even put China at, at the top of his list for um, nuclear threats to worry about. Um, and I think, Rebecca, you might have mentioned in the past that um, the 2010 Nuclear Posture Review said that Russia was not an adversary. 
Um, so my question for, for you, Dr. Painter, for anyone who wants to take it, is if the, the Biden administration conducts um, a new nuclear posture review, which we're hearing uh, that he will, um, should that nuclear posture review take a broader view of what capabilities the U.S. needs to account for these changes in the geopolitical environment? Or do you think the best we can expect um, is a validation of our current minimal modernization plans? Well, let, let me suggest broadly that it's never possible realistically to say, this is the deterrent requirement we need. We build it, we have it, and it's good for an indefinite period of time. Deterrence requirements can change. Uh, they can change very quickly. And so any review needs to look very carefully at the, con the context, the strategic environment that we're in now, and the perspective environment that's coming. Uh, I often say that you know the outside world actually has something to do with our requirements. You know, we can't just generate these internally and say, uh, we want this because it meets some standard that we've picked for uh, some internal reason. The outside world has a vote and the outside world changes. And the point of my, my initial remarks was the outside world has changed dramatically. And our approach to identifying the requirements for deterrence has to understand what those changes are and what they mean for our requirements. And yes, do I think that that means we need to take a broader look at, the, at what the requirements be, both nuclear and non-nuclear? Yeah, uh, because the outside world uh, drives that. If the outside world threat environment was very different, perhaps we could just sit back and say, look, what we have is fine. We don't need anything else. We don't even need to modernize what we have because for some reason the outside world has become benign. As I see the threat context, the threat context seems to be getting more and more challenging as opposed to less and less challenging. And any review needs to take that into account. And Jane, if I can just add to that real quick too, I, I, I would just say without question, because as Senator Kyle laid out, the New START Treaty was even, that the, the, the Republicans even agreed to, to support the New START Treaty based on the threat conditions laid out at the time on full nuclear modernization commitment from the Obama administration. That was given, the Obama administration did provide that for the first couple of years, but that, that need still holds as a baseline, if not more different kinds of ad, ad, adaptions. And so I, I would just say, you know, without question, there's some, some talk about possibly not, not putting full modernization spending um, this year because of the coronavirus and all kinds of other things that are pulling on the, on the desires of policymakers for spending infrastructure now. But I would just say that this is paramount. The threats have gotten worse and that bipartisan commitment was there. And, um, and so without, we have no excuse at this point um, you know, to, to fully modernize uh, the, the nuclear triad and in particular that land-based leg of the triad it came up in the previous conversation um this this where chairman smith the chairman of the armed services committee um he continues um with respect to him to make i can tell these um wrong conclusions based on i think faulty assumptions about what the united states is trying to do we, we can't compare our nuclear modernization plan to the chinese um because 
to, to Dr. Payne's point and just into what, what Matt just said too, we're different countries with different objectives, different priorities, different concepts of risk and what we're trying to do, different desires to deter the employment of nuclear weapons, different, and we have different obligations. The United States um, provides nuclear assurances to, to allies, and, and that uh, helps to satisfy non-proliferation objectives that we, we don't want some other countries to obtain their own nuclear weapons. And so we, we, we devise a nuclear posture that in part can meet the assurance needs of our allies who rely on that nuclear umbrella. And, and so I would just say for the sake of all of those things, um, that certainly at the very least, uh, the United States must fulfill uh, what, it, what it has already uh, deemed and has earned bipartisan consensus about the nuclear modernization plan. I'll just add to this uh, as well. And um, you know, for the people on the uh, listening in who don't focus on this on, on a daily basis, just, just remind everyone that uh, U US uh, nuclear weapons are old. Uh, they were they were built at the end of the Cold War. Uh, uh, I don't know if any of you drive cars. Uh, if you drive cars that were built in the in the 1980s, uh, they probably don't work that well. You've probably gotten a new one since then. Um, so the United States does need to upgrade its triad. There's a bipartisan uh, consensus for this. We need new bombers, ICBMs, uh, and submarines. Um, and so uh, Obama agreed to that. Trump agreed to that. And in 2018, then. Uh, Trump, uh, the Trump administration added these two supplemental capabilities. Uh, and I think those are important, especially for dealing with the Russia escalate to de-escalate challenge that uh, Rebecca and Dr. Payne uh, talked about. We, we do need those capabilities. That was an adjustment to a changed security environment. So, so my hope would be at a minimum that Biden maintains this bipartisan consensus, continues with the full modernization program. Uh, I am somewhat worried, though, they uh, promised in their interim national security guidance to reduce the role of nuclear weapons. Uh, so unclear what that means. There are, there are a variety of ways they could do that. I, I hope it wouldn't be by um, uh, curtailing the modernization program, because I think that would be a challenge. And I would just point out that there is a possible uh, tension in, in Biden's stated objectives, because he's uh, really made a big deal about um, repairing America's alliances. Uh, and I would just remind everyone that, that America's alliances depend on U.S. nuclear weapons. Um, our over 30 formal treaty allies are depending on the U.S. extended deterrent. Uh, and I have heard from allies who have said that, th that they're nervous that Biden's talking about reducing the role of nuclear weapons. Uh, and so I, I don't think Biden can really reduce the role of nuclear weapons and repair alliances at the same time. He, he has to choose. And so I hope he chooses uh, strong uh, a deterrent and, and strong alliances. Excellent. Thank you. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up um, Biden's interim security guidance about uh, reducing the role of nuclear weapons. Um, and in, in an event with Senator Deb Fisher a few weeks ago that I did, she pointed out that that's the same rhetoric that uh, was in Obama's 2010 nuclear posture review that was based on um, an entirely different security environment, a, a much more benign one. Um, as Dr. Payne mentioned, we need to be looking at um, the, or the current threats should be driving what we're saying about our, our nuclear policy. Um, so I want to home in now on the uh, non-strategic nuclear threat that you all kind of touched on. Um, Re Rebecca, in our, our report, we found that Russia can deploy nuclear weapons on uh, numerous types of dual-capable systems, ranging from cruise missiles to landmines to artillery, even potentially systems like the S-300. Um, and Matt, you mentioned China's uh, theater nuclear advantage in the Indo-Pacific. Um, comparatively, U.S. only has 
a couple of hundred non-strategic nuclear weapons in Europe, and we, we recently deployed the low-yield W76-2 warhead on Trident missiles to help fill this deterrence gap. So I'm wondering, um, and this, this could go to, to any of you, how would you assess the capability of, of, of existing U.S. nuclear forces to deter these non-strategic threats? Um, and do you foresee a need to build new or additional non-strategic forces to, to help deterrence in the future? I, I can go ahead and take that um, first. Um, this a couple of things that came to mind as you were talking, Patty Jane. One is that we have got to take a more humble approach to how we think about this. Dr. Payne has constantly now several times said that there is no set definitive formula essentially that we can look to. And because the threat environment is changing, becoming more complex, and, and we've got things that are, I mean, we're, we're right now, we've, we've repeatedly heard from senior military officers about the threat of, of China taking Taiwan. And Taiwan, uh, that is of enormous geopolitical significance for the United States. And really, if, if China does take Taiwan successfully, they will have effectively supplanted the United States in the Indo-Pacific, but then broadly um, as the preeminent global power. Uh, preventing the United States from, from really credibly being able to make good on our security commitments to our allies and partners, et cetera, by blocking us, by having that essentially as unsinkable aircraft carrier uh, right there in the first island chain. So um, all, all that being said, I thought Matt did a great job explaining why nuclear conflict is actually not an implausible uh, uh, scenario that could happen in the case of a Taiwan crisis. And so that is a right now purely you've talked admiral davidson has talked about um needing to quickly 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 deploy long-range fires long uh, ground-based cruise missiles to be able to make up for the conventional mismatch that we have right now in the indo-pacific theater and i would just foot stomp what matt said as a warning that we should not limit our imaginations to strictly conventional because China, the Chinese might make different calculations because of the value they place on Taiwan, and if a conventional conflict begins to look like the United States with our allies, with the Japanese, hopefully, and, and other allies and partners um, are coming in to defend Taiwan, that they might make a rash decision that we deem ir irrational or unreasonable, but that they do not. And so that we need to not be so hubristic about being certain about what the Chinese might do in that scenario. And so with that, we should make sure that we have nuclear capabilities to fill out that escalation ladder so that we can have a credible option in the event we need to try to de-escalate a situation that has gone nuclear so that we can win on terms most favorable to the United States. Um, and so we, I think we should be seriously looking at that. I hope that answers part of your question, Patty Jane. Let me just add on, and I thought that was a, a very nice answer, Rebecca. Let me add on because it, it, what I'd like to say fits back in with the point made earlier about reducing the reliance on nuclear weapons. Because what that often suggests, and what was suggested in the past when that was presented as a goal, was that we're going to emphasize more conventional forces, non-nuclear forces, for the purposes of deterrence, uh, as opposed to emphasizing nuclear forces, and that way we can step back from reliance on nuclear forces for deterrence, right? That's that's the usual logic, and it fits in with the point that Rebecca just made. Let me just suggest, and I can do this very briefly, why that argument 
really is incoherent. It's an illogical argument. I mean, I'm all for conventional forces for deterrence purposes. So don't read this as suggesting that I think that conventional forces aren't useful for deterrence. They can be very useful for deterrence. But to suggest that conventional forces can reduce reliance on nuclear forces for deterrence, as I said, it's incoherent. It's illogical because the stronger our conventional capabilities are, the more opponents see us as being able to meet them and defeat them conventionally, gives them a greater incentive to escalate out of the conflict that they may be losing conventionally. In other words, our nuclear deterrent has to hold. It has to prevent their escalation. And so we should have robust conventional forces that contribute to deterrence. The challenge is making sure our nuclear deterrent holds so we just haven't essentially given opponents the greatest incentive to escalate out of their problem by using nuclear weapons. So we have to be able to deter at both levels. We have to be able to work at both levels. So it's not that nuclear deterrence has less reliance uh, placed on it. Nuclear deterrence is, is just as important even as we go forward with conventional forces that we hope uh, can can serve those purposes. Uh, and so when, when I hear the argument, we're gonna reduce reliance on nuclear deterrence by moving forward with conventional forces, my answer is, you know, don't you understand? Nuclear deterrence has to hold for us to be able to use conventional forces. That's the fallacy of that point. And I think it's easy to understand, but it very rarely is made. I'll just add if I uh, can as well. So I do think the two supplemental capabilities introduced by the Trump administration uh, do go a long way to uh, giving us some of those flexible uh, theater capabilities. But but I, I do wonder if there's more uh, we should do. So in, in Asia, as I was talking about before, I, I think China basically does have a theater advantage now. And, and during the Cold War, we, we had four deployed um, nuclear weapons in Asia. Uh, we exercised um, the uh, uh, more with dual capable aircraft. And so I think those are other options uh, we could maybe consider, if, if not uh, for deploying, uh, which some people think would be going too far, at least exercising uh, the capability and, and showing um, uh, China that we do have uh, other options uh, in the theater. And then looking at um, Europe, um, you know, for a long time, for decades really, we thought it was important that NATO uh, kind of as an alliance have capabilities. And so we have the forward deployed US nuclear weapons there. And then we have the um, NATO allies that have dual capable aircraft that can deliver conventional uh, weapons or uh, B-61 gravity bombs. Uh, but as Russia's air defenses improve, I think there are real questions about our ability to get uh, gravity bombs over targets uh, in the likely conflict zones in, in Eastern uh, Europe. And so I think at some point we need to make a decision. Do we want NATO to be a, a nuclear alliance uh, still, or, or is it just going to rely on US and British nuclear weapons? So, um, uh, and if we want it to be a nuclear alliance, then I think it's going to need uh, some more standoff capabilities instead of gravity bombs, uh, perhaps some kind of air launch cruise missile that could be delivered by uh, dual capable um, aircraft. And you know, we're basically moving to a situation where we're, uh, we're going to have to rely on US and British nuclear weapons because NATO's losing uh, capability. And maybe we wanna make that decision, but I think it should be a decision, uh, not just um, uh, you know, a situation imposed on us because we don't update our capabilities to deal with uh, Russian defenses. Great, I, I think those are great points. And I, I certainly hope that as Biden administration moves forward with their review, they will consider the uh, increasing non-strategic threat and, and different capabilities uh, to deter it. And in particular, the I think 
the sea-launched cruise missile is expected to start this year. So I'm, I'm curious at least to see if um, we'll see that in the budget request. Um, so I'm going to jump to the, the topic of the, the land lake of the nuclear triad. Uh, Senator Kyle said that he is hoping to hear Dr. Payne's uh, thoughts on this issue. So I'm, I'm going to ask him, and, and we also have an, an audience question here on the, uh, the ground-based strategic deterrent program. Um, and the question is that uh, we've seen proposals uh, to cancel the ground-based strategic deterrent program and instead maintain uh, the Minuteman III fleet of ICBMs for as long as possible. Um, what would be some of the consequences of this policy? Um, Dr. Payne, if we could start with you. I thought that uh, Senator Kyle gave a, a very nice answer to the question about why ICBMs. And I'll, I'll just talk very, very briefly here and invite Rebecca and Matt to add their own points. Uh, the, the, one point, the one point I would add is that in the absence of ICBMs or in the absence of a continuing modernization of ICBMs, uh, what you've done is just ease the opponent's problems. And, and at, the, at, at one end, let me just describe one end and, and Rebecca and Matt can add as they like. Uh, in the absence of ICBMs, uh, folks say, well, the SLBMs, the submarine launch ballistic missiles, can provide the sole deterrent. But in the absence of ICBMs, and some also suggest eliminating the bomber leg, in the absence of these other platforms, these other legs of the triad, what you've just done is allow opponent to focus all those resources on anti-submarine warfare. And so the argument that says the submarines are going to be survivable forever, amen, all of a sudden, by relying on that and getting rid of the other legs of the triad, or effectively getting rid of the other legs of the triad, what you've just given is any opponent that is interested in competing in that way can focus its resources rather than on three legs of a triad, can focus on one leg of a triad, and that may cause uh, problems that we just haven't anticipated with regard to the survivability of that final leg of the triad. Uh, that's one of the reasons I think it's a, a, an important reason why the triad is enormously useful in maintaining the ICBMs uh, is, is essential if we want to continue to have a credible nuclear deterrent. I can jump in here then. Um, I, I would just say, not only should we maintain the land-based leg of the triad, but we need to be very, very clear that we cannot just do another service life extension of the Minuteman III. It is long past time to do full funding of the ground-based strategic deterrent. The decision was made to replace that ICBM with the GBSD back in, I think it was 2014. Um, opponents now will say we can just study it some more and save some money. That is just predicated on bad thinking. Um, we can't study it anymore. We've studied it enough. If anybody who says we need to study it again, they're using that as a pretext to slow down the land-based leg of the triad. And in doing so, you're going to actually move down, possibly down below the 400 deployed ICBMs through attrition. There are component parts of the Minuteman III that need to be replaced in the next few years. And once we begin doing that, you're actually going to dip down below those 400. And Matt can tell you all day about the problems of going down to lower than 400. Um, and so it's a, it's a really, really serious problem. The ground-based strategic deterrent isn't even just replacing, you know, just an old system, thinking that we just need to make sure this one works better. It, it's, it's because we have been doing SLEP is what's called. We have been replacing different component parts of the Minuteman III. So um, that, that's good, but it is still technology that is decades old. 
And so we want the, the, the newest um, uh, technology because our adversaries have been advancing their own capabilities. And we wanna make sure that we're gonna be able to put those ICBMs on the targets we want, not because we wanna do it, but because we wanna convince our adversaries that we could do it, thereby deterring them from making a really bad decision about targeting the United States. And last point I'll make, because you'll hear this for those watching it, there's congressional staff watching it, you'll hear people say, listen, all our ICBMs are is a, is a warhead sponge, is what they'll say. They're just there because it, to set a really high bar for the enemy to have to want to clear to be able to attack the United States homeland. And since that's quote unquote all it is, we don't need to have greater capabilities. That is a myth. And it, again, based on faulty reasoning and understanding about what those are, they do, they, the reason that an adversary would want to target them is because they would believe that they could successfully put a warhead on a target. And so you want to make sure that you're using the latest, best technology to be able to, to, to convince, again, not ourselves, the enemy of what capabilities we have to be able to dissuade them from acting against the United States and their interests in the worst possible way. So it is long past time. We've got to have the, the ground-based strategic deterrent to be able to have that land-based leg of the triad that has earned bipartisan consensus and is still salient today. And I'll add to this too, and I, I just published a report uh, with the Atlantic Council called The Downsides of Downsizing, uh, Why the United States Needs 400 ICBMs, and I believe it's in the handout, uh, so thanks for sharing that uh, with the audience, Patty, Patty Jane. I, I'll make a couple of points. One, it's interesting that Americans think that ICBMs are uh, somehow um, expendable, and you know, if we look at other nuclear powers, um, Russia and China see their ICBM leg as the most important leg. Uh, of triad, uh, and so, you know, what is it that they uh, appreciate about it that that we don't? Um, and, and so, in the report, I, I lay out the contribution of ICBMs to U.S. nuclear strategy. And in the 2018 Nuclear Posture Review, uh, there were several explicit goals of U.S. nuclear strategy, and, and ICBMs contribute to all of them. And, and cutting them all together, or even cutting the number, uh, I think would weaken all of those goals. Uh, so it would weaken deterrence uh, for the reasons that Dr. Payne mentioned. It would make a nuclear attack on the United States more thinkable. For Russia, might, uh, as China increases the size of its arsenal, might make a, a, uh, put a nuclear attack within reach uh, of China's capabilities. Um, assurance of allies. Um, you know, at a time when many allies are questioning whether America is willing to play its traditional role in the world, is it willing to, to defend allies? Um, if we start cutting back uh, the nuclear arsenal that's meant to defend the entire free world, we're going to exacerbate uh, their fears. And that's not just me saying that, that's something I've heard uh, from allies. Uh, we want to hedge against an uncertain future, is something the NPR says. Um, you know, Russia and China are expanding the size of their arsenals. New start uh, could end tomorrow if, if Russia decided to pull out. And so we need to, to think about that. And having ICBMs uh, does give us that hedge. It would allow us to upload additional warheads, increase the size of our arsenal if we wanted to. Uh, and then finally, achieve our objectives if der deterrence fails. And of course, the, the primary purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter. Uh, but if uh, the, the enemy gets a vote, if Russia or China decided to attack, we would want to achieve our objectives. Uh, and ICBMs help, uh, helps us to do that, helps us to limit, limit damage. And so essentially cutting ICBMs, cutting the number of ICBMs means uh, that God forbid in, in the event of a nuclear war, um, millions of more Americans would die. Uh, whereas if we had just kept those ICBMs, we could save lives. 
Uh, so I think for all of those reasons, a strong ICBM force uh, makes a lot of sense for U.S. nuclear strategy. And if I could talk in here, if I could just real quick on cost, just to for those of you watching, when we talk about modernizing the entire nuclear triad, it's about six seven percent of the entire national defense budget. The ICBM leg is a tiny fraction of that um, incredibly reasonable amount for what what we're getting. And, and so you should reject that argument too that it's simply not affordable. Thanks, Rebecca. Yeah, and I think it, the, that six percent is at uh, nuclear modernization's peak too, not even throughout the the entire process. Um, but I, I wanted to follow fact, up. Um, if I could just add a, in the report, I point out that that Americans spend uh, much more on uh, Doritos, Cheetos, and Funyuns every year uh, than we're planning on spending on ICBM modernization. Uh, it's, uh, That's a great point we need out there. <laughs> Um, and then lastly, on, on the uh, the GBSD issue, I wanted to follow up with you, Matt. Um, in, in your report, um, the argument that I found most compelling was that reducing the U.S. ICBM fleet would free up about uh, 200 Russian warheads to retarget to U.S. Uh, cities and populations, um, which I found alarming. Can you explain quickly this uh, logic to the audience? Well, um, uh, you know, so um, in the event of a nuclear war, Russia would uh, likely want to attack U.S. nuclear weapons so that we couldn't use them against Russia uh, in, in a first strike. Now, um, outside analysts, as a rule of thumb, assume that it takes two offensive warheads uh, to target uh, uh, an enemy warhead because what if the what if you miss? What if the warhead doesn't go off? What if you don't kill the target? So you want some redundancy. So if Russia was going to launch a, a major nuclear attack on the United States, it would need to allocate 900 warheads to cover the 450 ballistic missile silos. So that's like 60% of Russia's arsenal. Uh, so that's a lot of warheads that aren't going to other things. Um, if we cut uh, by 100, which is what some people are proposing, uh, then that frees up 200 um, Russian warheads to do other things. So they could use those to uh, attack other US cities, uh, again, killing millions uh, more Americans. Uh, they could try to hold them back to deter uh, U.S. retaliation. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, cutting uh, our deterrent weakens our deterrent. It's, it's pretty simple. Excellent. Uh, so we had two members of the, the audience ask a question about engaging China on arms control. Um, as we know, China, China has engaging China on arms control has been a goal of the previous and current administrations. but. China has thus far refused to participate in arms control discussions. Um, and whoever wants to take this, what do you think it will take to incentivize, incentivize China to enter into arms control discussions with the U.S.? I, I, I can add something on this. We, we, I had a report on uh, trilateral arms control with the Scowcroft Center as well. Um, so I think if arms control is going to matter in the 21st century, it, it has to include China. It, it's not the 1970s anymore. It's, you know, uh, Russia is not the only nuclear threat. We see China as the uh, primary rival. So if we want arms control to matter, we have to include China. Uh, but it's going to be very hard. They have no history of arms control. Uh, they haven't expressed much, much of an interest in, in arms control. So I think it's worth uh, pursuing, but I think we need to be uh, realistic that we're unlikely to get anywhere. And I think in the short term, you know, baby steps might be all that's possible, maybe strategic security dialogues with Russia and China. Um, uh, some have proposed the idea of bringing Chinese experts along to um, New START visits so that they get a sense of how verification is done. Um, so um, I, I think it's a noble goal. I think it's going to be hard and uh, baby steps are all we can expect in the near term. 
I'm, I'm happy to add uh, generally by going back to a quote from Herman Kahn in 1960. And I'm paraphrasing it because I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but uh, Herman said, if you actually want to be successful in arms control, you have to look so capable to your opponent that the opponent chooses to work with you as opposed to working against you. And you have to be so capable that the opponent doesn't want to compete with you in that sense, that the opponent would rather cooperate with you. And so I find it sort of ironic that what we often hear is somehow reducing our capabilities is going to lead to a greater chance for arms control. No, I think Khan was right. So the more capable you are, the greater incentive, whoever the other uh, party is, the more capable you are, and the more capable you are, particularly if it's an opponent, I should add, the more capable you are, the more incentive opponent has to cooperate with you as opposed to compete with you. And so the, the, the general notion that if we only give up X, Y, and Z, uh, then the, the opponent will somehow come to terms uh, at the, end of a, at the end of a negotiation process, that may be right. That's not the way to go into a negotiating process. And just one more point. Um, I, I would say that, you know, we, we haven't really created an incentive for the Chinese to begin talking to us. And it's, you know, secrecy is the characteristic that defines the Chinese Communist Party. And it's with everything. Uh, and so it's especially concerning when you know they want to replace the United States as the world, uh, you know, to take the mantle of leadership from the United States to set the parameters and the role, the rules in which other countries should abide by when it comes to trade and commerce and and everything else. Um, and and yet they they they're they're not willing to actually provide the responsibility that goes with and responsibility and duty that goes with that kind of power, and especially when it comes to their nuclear weapons. And um, and I heard Admiral Richard paraphrasing too when he testified. He said, you know, because because their program is so closed and they won't talk to us about it, it, it forces the United States to make worst case scenario assumptions about what they're doing. And so it is in the interest of the Chinese Communist Party in that respect to begin disabusing us of the notion of the direction and how they're relying on nuclear weapons if we're wrong. And so, but 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 the United States is going to have to create a context in which the Chinese feel the heat and feel the pressure so that they decide it's in their interest to begin conversations with the United States and to begin um, behaving more transparently uh, be because they believe that it is better than the alternative. And so that's why you know, all of these things that, that Admiral Davidson and others have been saying um, to rebalance the Indo-Pacific are so incredibly important because right now the Chinese simply don't, don't think that it's in their interest to begin these conversations. Um, so we have time for one more audience question. And um, we have one here for, for Dr. Payne. Uh, since taking office, the Biden administration has placed a heavy emphasis on renewing our commitments to our allies and partners. For instance, he's reassured both Japan and Taiwan of the US commitment to their defense and most recently pledged unwavering support to Ukrainian sovereignty. How do you think a failure to, to modernize any leg of the US nuclear triad in a timely manner would affect the credibility of these security commitments? No, that's a great question. Um, and I, renewing commitments in the in the way you've just described, or re reconfirming commitments to allies, I think is a is a is a positive step. I, I think that's a good a good way to go. Uh, but if we then turn around and start 
essentially walking back the type of uh, force planning that has received bipartisan support for going on 10 years, we're going to be sending very mixed signals. We're going to be rhetorically saying, we're with you, we're with you, unconditionally with you. Uh, but what they're going to actually see is the reduction in capabilities to live up to that commitment. Uh, in fact, I've had uh, allies, allied uh, folks tell me, you know, we hear what you say, but what we want to see is you actually doing it. Uh, and so if we want to have consistent signals about renewing our commitments to our allies and partners and, and, and expressing those commitments in very solid terms, uh, reducing our nuclear capabilities that many of them rely on for extended deterrence and the ultimate guarantor of their security uh, is going to be sending mixed mix signals uh, and, and reducing our ability to assure allies of that. I mean, I'm going back to a point that, that Matt said, to degrade, degrade your deterrent capabilities, degrade your deterrent. Uh, and doing so degrades your ability to assure allies. And I think coming back to a point that Rebecca made, and what you're also doing is providing some motivation for at least some of them to think about, okay, so we have to do this ourselves. And think about what that means. I, I noticed a 2016 poll I just re-looked at uh, in South Korea said a majority of South Koreans thought that South Korea should have its own independent nuclear capabilities. And so what you want to do is have consistent signals that we do support our allies. And by the way, we are going to have the capabilities necessary to do that credibly. Great. Um, yeah, any, any final comments from um, Rebecca or Matt before we wrap up? Just real quick on Ukraine. One of the most compelling arguments I've heard about why the United States still has an interest in not just handing Ukraine over to the Russian Federation right now is the Budapest Memorandum, which assured Ukrainians that if they eschewed nuclear capabilities, they would have security commitments, that the integrity of their borders would be respected. If the United States simply throws in the towel, and I mean, what what impact could this this have to Dr. Kane, Dr. Payne's point about it's one thing for us to say these things about nuclear assurances or promises, um, it's another thing to make good on them. And so, though Ukraine obviously is not a member of NATO, they do have security commitments that are owed. Um, that obviously the Russian the Russian Federation is clearly openly violating. They are the aggressor, and and so there needs to be consequences for for that kind of violation. Just because as a, you don't you don't you don't want to you don't want it sorry just make clear you don't want to incentivize countries by saying if you don't have nuclear weapons you're toast against these nuclear powers that that is not the message that the United States wants to send that you can still understand that your your borders do have integrity and that they will be respected simply be, you know even if you don't have nuclear capabilities. Yeah, I would just add. Um, now, I think often discussions of U.S. nuclear weapons, there's there's this kind of connotation that they're a bad thing and we're going to reduce reliance and wouldn't that be a good thing? And I guess I would just say I think U.S. nuclear weapons have been one of the greatest forces for good uh, over the past 75 years. And, and there's a lot of focus on this U.S.-led rules-based international system. The Biden administration wants to revitalize uh, the system. And I think U.S. leadership has been a good thing over the past 75 years. I think the world is a more peaceful, prosperous, free place than it was uh, before. Uh, but I think that's been made possible by uh, U.S. nuclear weapons, deterring major power conflict in Europe and Asia, extending deterrence to the entire uh, free world, allowing them to forego their own uh, nuclear weapons. And we've essentially created these zones of, of peace and prosperity in, in Europe 
uh, in Asia and North America. Uh, I think it's no coincidence that the freest, most prosperous parts of the world are those protected by U.S. nuclear weapons. And so I think if we want to strengthen alliances, strengthen the rules-based system, uh, that uh, part and parcel of that is strengthening uh, America's nuclear weapons. Uh, Patty, let, so, me, let, me, let me add on a point to, and let's just take a second what, to what Matt said. And I go back to uh, a statement from one of my uh, early professors. It was Professor Ken Waltz, uh, the late Ken Waltz, and who was no hawk. And what Professor Waltz said was that uh, all of the talk against nuclear weapons seems to ignore the great value they have provided to countries for maintaining peace. He said, yes, if you don't like particular aspects of nuclear weapons, voice your opinion, but realize the great value they've provided in providing peace for countries to live and, and prosper in a peaceful context. I think that's a, a great note to conclude on. Um, this has been really excellent. Thanks so much to the three of you for, for participating in this event. Um, and also thanks to the audience for joining us today. Um, I, I want to remind the audience to join us for part two in this event series on April 14th, um, where we'll turn to the threats posed by um, Iran and North Korea. Um, so thanks again to everyone and have a great day.